Hello and welcome to Hoops Royalty. I'm King Jemison, alongside, as always, my man in Cleveland, Karna Venkatraj. And we are here, as always, to bring you Royal Hoops takes on the Memphis Grizzlies and NBA. And that's been a tough thing to do so far this season, Karna, because the Memphis Grizzlies have fallen to 2-9 and nine on the season. Today, we're going to focus on those two most recent games, which was a win over the Clippers on Sunday in Los Angeles, and then a loss last night to the Lakers. And varying degrees of emotion between those two games, um, it was really a roller coaster trip to LA for the Grizzlies because you have this dramatic fourth quarter clutch win over the Clippers to snap a losing streak. Think maybe you've gotten some things turned around. And then you lose 134 to 107 to the Lakers in an eerily reminiscent game to uh, game six of the playoffs last season. Lakers went absolutely berserk from three. Grizzlies suffered more injuries with Marcus Smart leaving with an ankle injury. He was in a boot on the bench. Luke Kennard also exited the game with knee soreness. No update on either of those two players. But Karna, today we're going to do this episode a little bit differently. We're going to focus on our takeaways from those two LA games rather than doing our normal Royal Decree, News of the Realm, and Royal Court. And part of the reason for that is we will actually have another episode coming out tomorrow or at least released by Friday that will be a preview of the Celtics-Grizzlies game with a Celtics insider. So very excited for that one. It was supposed to be the Marcus Mart Revenge Tour, but I... I would be shocked if he played now. So now it's just another game that the Grizzlies are likely to lose. But it'll be lots of fun to preview anyway. We'll talk about the trade. But Karna, let's just get right into it. What is your first takeaway from these last two Grizzlies games in Los Angeles? So let me preface this. My takeaways will have some numbers behind them because I got a little crazy with basketball reference last night. Good thing. showing Showing off a little of the data analyst skills here. But the first thing... I will say is our perimeter defense. This is the first takeaway. The perimeter defense needs to improve. And this doesn't just, isn't just a takeaway from the Lakers game, right? The Lakers, we know shot the lights out and that was eerily similar to game six of the playoffs. Like you had mentioned, but the Grizzlies currently boast the worst percent, uh, three point percent against. So what that means is teams are shooting incredibly well from three point land against the Grizzlies. They're shooting. Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna see if you can guess. I don't know if you looked the podcast next document, but over under forty percent. What do you think? Oh, over. It's definitely over because it's, it's the it's, last it's, I checked, it was historically bad. Yeah, it's historically bad. It's about forty three percent. Now, there's Golly. a reason to worry about this, uh, and a worry a reason not to worry about this. Let's start with the reason not to worry about this. Teams are hitting hard shots against the Grizzlies. Sometimes defenders are they're just looking at the eye test, right? Like David Roddy will be in someone's grill and they're just shooting the lights out. So we are encountering some bad luck. What is worrying and more of a trend that we're seeing is that Marcus Smart was brought to the Grizzlies to shore up a perimeter defense or a backcourt perimeter defense, a backcourt defense that was middling to okay. This was supposed to take us elite in all levels of the court. It has not happened, and that is scary for us because when we get John Morant back, it's not going to add any level of 
defense on the perimeter that's going to be anything other than a couple of steals a game, which is impactful, but not not anything to write home about. So my first takeaway is Taylor Jenkins and the front office need to put their heads together and come up with a better way to defend the perimeter and defend the three-point line. Yeah, you, you said that some of it is unlucky, and I, I agree that there are tough shots being hit on the Grizzlies. That If you look at all the numbers, teams are drastically outperforming their season average when they play the Grizzlies from behind the three-point line. Case in point, the Lakers came into last night's game 28th in NBA three-point percentage, and then they went out and set a record for the highest three-point percentage in history on a minimum of 35 attempts. They shot over 60%. A lot of those, though, were way too open. Mm-hmm. There's been a ton of video produced by by great Grizzlies analysts that I very much respect that shows why these threes are too open. The Grizzlies' defense is structurally unsound. They are pulling in too close to defend the paint, and they are sagging too far off shooters. There's too much helping going on. And if any team doesn't need to help in the paint, it's a team that employs Depoy, Jaron Jackson Jr. And like, Bismack. Bismack. And Bismack. Um, and if you want to tell me that Jaron's defense hasn't been that great this year, I can't argue with that because, by the way, the Grizzlies' defense has actually gotten better with him off the court. His defensive net rating is is negative. Yeah. By, only by about a point, but it's still yeah. shocking given how much better they were defensively with him on the court last season. But yeah, it's a huge problem. It is the biggest problem outside of the injuries and, and suspensions and whatnot. And, and look, it is fixable. You can defend the three-point line better than the Grizzlies are right now. They are not staying attached to shooters, and that's a mistake. And here's the extension in my theory, is that when you were making a – trade-off. We are trying to employ team rebounding with the loss of Steven Adams, who now looks like a historically good rebounder. Uh, maybe the numbers don't say it, but how we're responding to the loss of him says that. And we are sagging farther and farther cl- and closer to the basket, largely because we need to rebound as a team. And uh, gang rebounding is so important. Because that's the only plausible explanation because you have Deep Boy down there and you have Bismack Biombo. It's not like you don't have any physicality down low or anyone to clean up some of these uh, drives to the basket. I think it's going to rely on some of our perimeter defense and our coaching staff to trust that Bismack Biombo can carry the rebounding load, that David Roddy when he's in, Conchar when, he can, when he's in. And, and maybe this is unfounded, but we what we can't do is give up open three-point looks. That should be the big takeaway from the first 11 games, and that's my takeaway. The perimeter defense needs to be a lot more staunch for us to even have a hope of coming back. Even below-average NBA three-point shooters are capable of making darn near half of their threes when they're wide open. Yeah, Dylan Brooks made. We saw him training. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Three-pointers in training over the summer. It's pretty easy to shoot on air when your life is shooting a basketball. Yeah. So you can't let guys shoot on air. And sometimes it's unavoidable because of of having to collapse on somebody driving into the paint. That's that's one thing. But when we are taking multiple steps towards the paint, when a guy just barely breaks inside the three-point line and sagging off good shooters, 
that's inexcusable. It's a structural defensive problem. And this was actually something that happened at the beginning of last season as well before Taylor Jenkins figured it out. I don't know if over the offseason Taylor Jenkins says, hey, guys, what if we just didn't defend the three-point line and, and see what happens? So, But it's a repeating theme. Yeah. So, King, we talked about beyond the three-point line. Now, I, I, you know, I was explaining the game of basketball to one of my coworkers the other day who didn't like she has a good understanding of of the Cavs maybe but maybe not where everyone stands on the floor. So I want to talk about paint scoring. Give me your takeaway about our internal uh issues with with paint scoring. Fantastic to di- fantastic transition there sir. You are the host. All right. <laughs> no thank you. <laughs> the Grizzlies have a paint problem. And it's not like they're it's a their bedroom paint is chipping that they need to go get a fresh coat at home depot no they got a paint scoring problem and by the way this is the team that was the number one paint scoring team in the nba by a dominant margin over a season and a half from john moran's true emergence at the beginning of the 2021-22 season all the way until stephen adams injury that kind of derailed things in the paint um, midway through last season in between that period Nobody could touch the Grizzlies in paint scoring. Obviously, this is going to improve when John Morant comes back, but it is crazy to me that the Grizzlies have fallen to 20th in paint points per game. Meanwhile, they're 6th in three-pointers made, only 25th in percentage, but that's a lot of numbers. Suffice it to say, their scoring is coming from the perimeter, even though they're not very good at shooting from the perimeter. They cannot generate any easy baskets. Another really troublesome stat the grizzlies are the third worst in the nba in opponent blocks per game last night the lakers had 10 this totally matched the eye test because i feel like the grizzlies are getting blocked on every drive to the basket they don't have enough physicality in the paint and they now sit 28th in the nba anti-penultimate in the nba in two-point percentage shooting just 50 percent from inside the arc they shot 36 percent inside the arc against the Lakers. They are not generating any easy baskets. And this team is not built to beat you from the three-point line. Yes, they're top 10 in the NBA in three-pointers per game, but they're not doing that efficiently. They are a below-average three-point shooting team. And even when they do shoot it well, as they did last night against the Lakers, they made 23, shooting 38%. And they still got killed because if you can't generate those easy looks within the paint, you can't run an efficient offense. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I think. Well, let, let me let me ask you a quick follow up to yeah. this. You know, we we say that paint scoring improves, but and for physical presence, but part of this is also, you know, not having John Morant, right? Like of that's course. a guy who can score at will in the paint. Yeah, NBA paint points leader. Yeah, a couple seasons ago, yeah, yeah, yeah. was very close to that number last. Yeah, season. which uh, yeah, which you kind of covered there. My question is. Do you lay some of the blame here on, on really two people? And I, you know, I love to play the blame game. Do you lay the blame on the front office for not mm. adequately seeing this as a, as a problem going into the year? And do you lay this part of this blame on Marcus Smart not being able to be a creator and expected to? I don't blame it on Marcus Smart, which, yeah. you know, I think he's had up and down moments in his first 
uh, 11 games as a Memphis Grizzly, but he does still have a positive net rating on this team. He is still making them better offensively and defensively. Uh, I loved his assist at the end of the Clippers game. Listen, we're coming off of a very disappointing loss to the Lakers, but the game before that, the Grizzlies actually made plays in the fourth quarter, in some ways led by Marcus Smart, and they closed out a game against a probable playoff team. That was a really encouraging sign. And if Marcus Smart is out, particularly if Luke Kennard is also out, the Grizzlies' wing depth is completely shot. Mm-hmm. So I don't blame it on Marcus Smart. Um, the front office made a lot of mistakes over the past two years that have led us to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, the only mistake I see this offseason was not cashing in some of your younger players or picks to add another competent scoring option. Mm-hmm. Um, Which this is just that. spitballing. I'm trying mm-hmm. to just think off the top of my head. But like even a guy like Karis LeVert in Cleveland – who gettable. has a lot of detractors, but yeah. a, and so for that reason is a gettable player, but he's a bucket. Yeah, he can generate his own shot, and the Grizzlies don't have enough people who can do that. So mm. when they're missing their offensive engine in John Morant, that means nobody's getting those good yeah. looks. And I, and I think that's a really really good segue into my second takeaway awesome. from not only just these last two games, but for, for the kind of the full season. Desmond is a all NBA scorer. Now this has a positive side. He has become such a great scorer. Unfortunately, I believe his ceiling, which is fine, is not enough to carry a franchise. He cannot be the leading scorer on a championship level team. That is what I've seen from these last, and that's for a couple of reasons. One, he struggles to – you have to build a whole system around him. He cannot really create on his own just yet. Downhill Des does create on his own. So if you can get him in transition, you play that game, he can score on his own. But as far as the half-court offense, him being the primary scorer, scoring in a number of different ways in a number of different settings, his game right now isn't dynamic enough to do that. Granted, he's only 25. Maybe give him three years and he becomes – you know, he's a late bloomer and it can be a number one. But I think from what I've seen so far, he is a solid, great number two to have. But he can, I don't think he has a capability that sets him apart to be a number one. And I think what's interesting to think about is okay, then why can Jaw be a number one on a team? Well, one, the jury's still out on that. But two, I, I think, and that's a, that's a different debate from a different time. But I think the, the, the issue is, John Morant has that explosive athleticism that can eventually, and and his shooting and outside scoring can eventually catch up to that. I just don't think Desmond Bain is there yet, nor does he have the physical tools to get there, at least in the next, definitely not this year as we've seen, but maybe not even the next two years. Let's go ahead and transition to my second takeaway, because it could directly build off of what you just said. And, Two things I can't contest there, Karna. Number one, Desmond Bain is coming off a game where he scored 15 points, and eight of those came early on in the first quarter. And after that, the Lakers said, we're going to take away Desmond Bain by double-teaming him on every play, and the Grizzlies' offense just dried up. Now, I thought he made some good passes. There were a lot of shots that were missed. Um, he passed into guys who who you know had the the right idea 
to pump fake and go to attack a closeout, but couldn't do anything once they were in the paint. So I don't think it's all Desmond Bain's fault, but the it's truth not. is he couldn't, he could not keep the offense afloat when he was drawing two defenders every time, which makes the Grizzlies easy to scheme against. That's number one that I can't contest. Um, number two, I can't contest that he's never going to be a first-team All-NBA guy, that he's never going to be the best offensive player on a top-10 offense in the NBA. But I am going to argue a little bit with the creator aspect. And my larger takeaway is that both Jaron Jackson Jr. and Desmond Bain are not being utilized to the best of the coaching staff's ability. They're not being utilized in a way that completely maximizes their individual skill sets. And one of the things I found looking at the NBA advanced stat data on Desmond Bain is that he is fourth in the NBA in points scored off handoffs, which is up there with Steph Curry. Up there with Tyrese Maxey. These guys we think of as more explosive scorers than Desmond Bain. In Maxey's case, not a better player, but just a guy who has that reputation of getting downhill. His scoring as a pick-and-roll ball handler is equivalent to, again, Steph, Paul George, James Harden, even Kevin Durant is right in that range at his efficiency scoring as a pick-and-roll ball handler. And that's not just his own scoring. That's the team points per play. And as you mentioned, Downhill does. He's top 10 in the NBA in transition scoring as well. So pick-and-roll ball handler, dribble handoff, ball pick-and-transition, pick and roll ball handler and dribble handoffs are all examples of creation. And he is excelling in those three areas where he's actually struggling this season is he's only shooting 27% when coming off a screen. So when they're trying to draw up plays to get him a wide open look, he's not cashing those in. I actually think that has to do with the fact that when a team knows that a team, the other team's best option is a spot up shooter like if Clay Thompson didn't have Steph Curry, it would be a lot harder to get Clay Thompson those open looks. The fact that you have to think about Steph Curry, the creator, and then you have Clay Thompson running fast as he can off a screen, that's what stresses the defense. Dez doesn't have that backup right now. So right now, he should be the creator. And then here's the thing about Jaron Jackson Jr. Let's turn it there for a second. Jaron is only shooting 33% as the pick-and-roll roll man. And most of those attempts are going to be in the paint. So that's really bad. And he's actually the pick and roll roll man, 11th most frequently in the NBA. So he's doing this all the time and he's not doing it well. But on the flip side, he's shooting 58% on post-ups. The team scoring per play on Jaron post-ups is equivalent to Jokic. So why are we not giving Jaron Jackson Jr. more post-up opportunities? I know he's struggled in these last two games. 3 of 15 from the floor against the Clippers. We said it can't get worse. It did. He was 3 of 16 from the floor against the Lakers. He has a problem but with AD. He, has a problem he does with have a problem with AD. There's no doubt about that. But we've seen that Jaron Jackson Jr. as a post-up scorer can be the focal point of a successful offense. We're not seeing that enough. We need Desmond Bain to continue to get more pick-and-roll ball handling opportunities, more dribble handoff opportunities. And on the flip side, rather than using Jaron as a role man and certainly not as a spot-up shooter, he's shooting 27% as a spot-up shooter. We don't need any of that in this offense. Get him those post touches. And if you use those guys to to the best of their abilities consistently, 
you're going to see better offense. Uh, shout out to King. That was a great, that was fantastic research and really well put together, man. That was awesome. That was, that was maybe one of the better takes I've, I've had on this. I think we've had on this. Um, but that actually leads Appreciate me you. into my well-researched thing. <laughs> <laughs> I see your research and raise your research. Um, so I got curious because I say this a lot, but I'm like, do I have the data to prove it? So my question for you, what are the most important games in the season? Where do we find those games? In the playoffs. In the playoffs. I'm so – yes, in the playoffs. <laughs> yeah, this, then, this doesn't matter as long as you make the playoffs. Yeah, exactly. So I want to see – okay, let's crystallize it even further. Let's zoom in even further. What about the last couple of – last two games in a series, right? These either when your back is up against the wall or you're set to clinch. My thesis here is that Jaron Jackson Jr. has a big game problem. Mm. He does not show up in big games. In recent memory, we've had one game where AD was off the floor for a large portion of that game where he scored 31 points in game one, which we lost, by the way. Um, and I'm pretty sure he was in the negative, too, in the, in the plus minus. Hmm. So, in those games, in the last two games of any playoff series, he has a minus two rating. His median points are 15. He's shooting about 25%. And he's a negative 15 and a half rating with a 14 and a half uh, average points per game. What that shows me is that Jaron, and then I try, so I, I extended the analysis even further. I, I bucketed out the top four teams in regular season games. So think about teams like Denver, think about teams like uh, the Lakers, think about teams like um, in, in maybe in past times like the Clippers. Uh, a couple years ago. So for the last two seasons, each time he has fallen below his season average and plus minus. What this tells me is that against good teams in bigger moments, Jaron Jackson Jr. might shrink. Mm. But against bad teams, he can dominate them. Now, this happens for a number. This can be, there's some confounding variables, right? Good teams have better players, right? Like that's <laughs> that's the whole idea. But if you compare the last two playoff games to the first two playoff games in any season as well, Jaron Jackson Jr.'s plus minus jumps up in those first two games. As soon as you get to clutch time and you have to either clinch or keep yourself alive, he shrinks. Jaron Jackson Jr. in almost every scenario I ran, whether it's regular season, postseason, has a big game problem. And we've seen it anecdotally this year. Think about opening night. Think about last night. He has a big game problem. Just telling you. There's nothing I can say to dispute that because it so perfectly matches both the eye test and you have all the stats to back it up too. Um, Keith Parrish has been talking about this for a while in a different setting. Karna, you're, you're framing it as a big game problem. Um, Keith Parrish of Fast Break Breakfast has been framing it as a Jaron on the road problem where his shooting splits go down significantly. And that feeds into what you're saying as well. In these national marquee games, Jaron is not performing. And let me be honest here. If I was a casual NBA fan who was not a fan of the Grizzlies, let's say I had the same relationship to the Grizzlies as I currently have to the Oklahoma City Thunder. I'm, I'm interested in them, but I'm not a fan. And so I'm mostly just watching when the Grizzlies are, are on national television and maybe following stats from big events like, say, 
the FIBA World Cup. Well, what I'm going to see is Jaron Jackson Jr. seems overrated. Like people keep telling me he's like this incredible difference maker on both ends, but I keep seeing him struggle mightily, look lost. That's not true because you and I are watching all 82 and seeing the impact he is making in other games. But it says something about Jaron's development as a player that he's not performing in these big games. And it's what's holding the Grizzlies back right now. That paint scoring that I brought up, a lot of that's because of Jaron. Because by the way, Jaron is shooting at that team average of 50% uh, from the two from two point land. Jaron Jackson Jr. shot 58% from two point range last season. So his efficiency scoring inside is dropping dramatically and, and the Grizzlies offense is dropping with it. We need him to show up. That's it. Yeah. That's it. It doesn't matter if it's on Plain the road, simple. if it's here, if it's, on, if it's, you know, here, if it's in Memphis, if it's, Outside of Memphis, if it's on the moon, if it's on Mars, we need Jaron Zachton Jr. to show up if we want to win basketball games. Yep. Eight points is never going to be good enough. No. Um, so I expect a response from him against Wimby on Saturday. I think that I this so, is an opportunity man. for Jaron to out-physical somebody, which is not something he can do every game. Um, but if he doesn't, it's going to start yeah. to get dark because you're supposed yeah. to have three stars right now because of a suspension and a disappearing act. You have one and a half ready for my third he needs a season he needs a season to really just i want to see one season where he doesn't shrink in big moments and he just dominates the league um but yeah hit me with your last one last take is a little bit of an upshot so hopefully that's a good (laughs) a better vibe (laughs) to end on my last takeaway from the grizzlies final two games is is more of a general thing since a certain someone has entered the lineup. And you probably think I'm going to talk about the legend Bismack Biombo. I'm not this time because I think we, we talked ad nauseum about his importance on the last episode. This time I want to talk about Jacob Gilliard who has among major rotation players, the highest net rating on the Grizzlies. But I'm not going to talk about that as it relates to Jacob Gilliard because, frankly, he's a great fill-in option. He's a good story. But if he is part of your 10-man rotation when fully healthy, you've got something wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay? But his success on net rating, which, by the way, he is plus 10 for the season on the Grizzlies, that tells me the value of a true point guard. And, uh, Karna, can you remind the people what true point guard is going to be rejoining the Grizzlies in 14 games, God willing? Chris Paul. No, (laughs) we got Chris Paul. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. John Morant. Woo! Excited, baby. Now, the team may be in such a deep hole that it doesn't matter. But if Jacob Gilliard has a plus 10.6 net rating, that just goes to show how much the Grizzlies need a table setter. John Morant is one of the best table setters and electric playmakers in the league he will change things for this team the question is is it going to be too little too late if the grizzlies aren't able to sneak out let's say they've got 14 games left if they can't sneak out five or six wins in this in that stretch yeah it will be too little too late they will be in too deep a hole to climb out and it's really hard for me to see this grizzlies team winning 50 percent of its games over an extended stretch i hope i'm wrong Um, But at the very least, I'm taking comfort in Jacob Gilliard's net rating 
proving to me that John Morant is as valuable as we think it is. Here's, as we think here's, he is. here's what bothers me about the Jacob Gilliard narrative. And it has nothing to do with what you said. It's why did it take so long to figure this out? Right? Like, why yeah. does it have to go us losing multiple games in a row to start the season for us to figure out that we need a true point guard out there and Jacob Gilliard's our best off, off, off best option? Like, a, a follow up to that. Yeah. If Jacob Gilliard was on your roster and he played an entire season for the hustle, you've seen this guy. Yeah. Why are we signing Derek Rose? Yeah. I, why aren't I, we using that roster spot for a wing or a big? I, Definitely I, a big. It wouldn't, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's. No, you know I don't call for anyone's job. I don't think I don't, it's just not right because I don't know what goes on inside that building, and I never would. But this is my argument: there needs to be a super in-depth postmortem on not only Taylor Jenkins' actions but the whole front office, because their the response has been a comedy of continuous errors yep. and misvaluing. We had Jake Laravia getting significant minutes and just. Bungling all over the floor, game after game after game. And, you know, I, I said we should see what we have strategy. We saw what we had. It wasn't good. Now we need to figure out what's wrong on the player development side, what's wrong on the drafting side, and what's wrong on the in-game scouting side. Like, what's wrong with our own internal scouting of our players? Why did it take so long for Jacob Gilliard to, to emerge as, as our backup point guard? Or a true, real, really only true point guard on the roster. So just some things to think about, some questions. If I was in the media uh, in Memphis, I would ask. I, I would be like, yeah. wh wh why did this take so long? Yeah. And Karna, to your see what you have strategy, do you know who has the worst net rating on the Grizzlies? Because it's not Jake LaRavia. Is it? No, like, don't tell me. Is it Derek Rose? That would make sense. I don't even know if he's played enough minutes to qualify. He has, and he's he is he, okay. So Jake Laravia is second to last. Derrick Rose is third to last, but it is Zaire Williams, <laughs> and it's not particularly close. His net rating is minus twenty-two. The next closest is Jake Laravia at minus thirteen. Just gonna leave that there. We called for for Zaire to start because he looked good in the preseason, but that is not carried over. And he's oh. even shooting the ball okay. Yeah. Like, it's not really the three-point shooting that's a problem, which is what we thought it might be. I mean, Zaire for the season, I guess he's shooting 29%. It started off a little better than that. But um, he just looks lost on the floor. And at this point, David Roddy should be ahead of him in the rotation. David Roddy looks significantly more ready. And at the very least, he provides a bit of offensive spark because yeah. – He'll get into a body. He'll do the big body Roddy thing, go down the lane and generate a bucket. Yeah. That's more valuable than anything Zaire Williams is providing. Yeah. Call it, yeah. Some some are calling David Roddy a mini Kobe. That's what some people think. <laughs> Me before every game. I hope. I, I pray and, and I hope David Roddy has a drops eighty one and, and never happens. <laughs> some people are calling him um Colorado Zion. Yeah. I just that's I heard I, I I just heard it. It was out there. Yeah, <laughs> to well, me texting each other back and forth. <laughs> we we were saying that Zaire should be ahead of Roddy earlier, and, and that's You're completely wrong. flipped. We You're were wrong. wrong. Yeah, yeah. happens. And 
the yeah. tape don't lie, and it certainly hasn't for a lot of guys on the Grizzlies this yeah. season. But Karna, any last thoughts? Yeah, well, being wrong is not a big deal for us. It seems like the front <laughs> office has made being wrong a whole whole career for some people out there in Memphis. Um, but yeah, no. All that's to say is, look, this team is underperforming. It is, this is not what this team is, just like we've been saying in almost every single podcast. And, you know, it, it becomes tougher and tougher to say that as the weeks pass. But again, December looms large. And, you know, there's a chance we don't make the playoffs. And I'm not a big moral victory guy. But if we come out of the season with some takeaways on some young players, a renewed strategy of how we win games, and John Morant being laser focused on winning a championship, this season is not the worst thing that will ever happen to Grizzlies fans. That's what I'll say. The worst thing that will ever happen was on that fateful March night in Denver in which Brandon Clark tears his ACL and John Morant then goes out and and brings – well, I'm not – no. He did not bring the gun to the club, according to the NBA investigation, but pulls out the gun in the club while on Instagram Live. That's the darkest day. Everything's pretty much been downhill since then, but there will be brighter days ahead. At the very least, in 14 games, we get to watch John Moran play basketball again, and mm-hmm. that's a win for anybody. Yep, absolutely. Well, this has been Hoops Royalty. I'm King Jemison, alongside Karna Bankatrage, the biggest and most depressed Grizzlies fans in the Midwest. But we're still out here giving you those Royal Hoops takes. And so all we ask is that you give us some of that love back by liking and subscribing on YouTube, five-star reviews, nice comments, wherever you get this podcast, if you're listening to it. And uh, please tell your friends about the show um, if you're interested in coming on the show, if you have thoughts that you want to share with the people reach out. We'd love to work you in to the rotation. It'd be great. Um, And keep commenting and uh, telling us where we're right, where we're wrong, because that makes it a lot more fun. But Mm. thank you as always for listening and have a great night.